Welcome to the JFI's Weekly Choosing Up podcast with author and therapist, Ilana Kendall, and me, your host, Ellie Bass. Each week, we explore how to get into a Choosing Up headspace using insights from my book of the same name, as well as Jewish wisdom, psychology, and more. Join us now for this week's episode. Are you ready to choose up? So welcome back, everyone. We're so excited to be back. Um, it was um, a necessary break last week, and we're so uh, happy to be back. We're live also on Facebook. Um, we are coming back to our weekly pre-Shabbat Wisdom Fest with the amazing and brilliant Ilana Kendall. Um, and this is also our weekly podcast that gets released on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, any of the podcast apps that you use, more than likely you will be able to find Choosing Up on there. So um, if you only catch the beginning or you want to listen back to other episodes, please go and check out the podcast. Please like it, share it, subscribe to it, rate it, review it, and then send us a Choosing Up story. Um, uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Ellie Bass. I run something here in Toronto called the Yada Nashman Jewish Family Institute. And um, this is a partnership between myself and Ilana Kendall um, to do a weekly choosing up. So Ilana, where are we beginning today? Well, first I'm just gonna say like Wisdom Fest, I'm really liking. Oh, maybe we have another project. Yeah. <laughs> I also am holding myself back from telling a joke about peanuts, uh, which maybe another time when you were saying such lovely things about me, I'll just like leave you all on the edge of your seats. If you know, you know what I'm talking about, but thank you for the compliments. Um, and and uh, it, it is so lovely to be here with you. And I also just to say, like, it, it really has felt over these months and joining those of you who come on live and, and I've been hearing more and more from people who are listening to the podcast seems to be a kitchen prep uh, favorite activity to be listening to. And it really feels also like you're in this partnership with us. And, and really, I don't think that we would be continuing in this work if it wasn't feeling like it was landing in this place where it is empowering all of us really to use these paradigms, use these frameworks and to see these connections between Torah wisdom and, and, and modern psychology and insights and, and bringing it to life. So, so really thank you to all of you. Okay, so I wanna talk about a few things today and I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts, Ellie. The first thing I wanted to start off with um, is a little idea that popped up when I was learning this week's Parsha, the, the Torah portion. I wanna move us into some Hanukkah ideas because hey, like it's less than a week away. I know, this I coming Thursday night, God willing, will be the first near Hanukkah. So next week we'll, we'll be learning together on Hanukkah. So at least like we'll start our launch and next week we will continue there. Amazing. And then I wanted to wrap us up with a story that one of our listeners sent in that is just really beautiful and connects to an idea that I shared on my, on my email this morning. So fast belts, let's do this. Okay, okay, let's do this. How can we not say something about this Parsha? There's just... It's just for those who have been learning it with me in different venues, like it's hair raising, it's confusing. There's just so many things in it. So I'm super excited to hear your uh, um, your piece of the puzzle on this one. Yeah, and I, I really, I love this story uh, at the launch actually for Choosing Up, we shared one of the most to me poignant 
pieces of Yaakov's life, but I'm not going there today. This is, this is the strategy where you go, that's a whole other talk. That's right. <laughs> today, I wanted to talk actually at the beginning of the Parsha, a very interesting language that comes up. So, so Yaakov is traveling. We have this episode that has happened earlier in his life where he, um, has parted ways with his brother Asaph, right? To, to sort of put it mildly in the very glossing over the details version, but things are not good between the two of them, right? Stolen birthright, um, you know, antagonism since they were in utero. Like, you know, anyone who's a family systems therapist and, and you want to check out Ellie and Avnadigal's um, other podcast, right? Like, they would have a field day with this. Oh yeah. So, 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 so we have in our Parsha where Yaakov is going to be approaching his, his sort of long lost brother Asaph again. And he sends these angels ahead of him and these angels, these messengers come back and, and they say as follows, I want to read to you inside here where it says the angels returned to Yaakov, to Jacob saying, we came to your brother, to Asaph. Moreover, he's heading toward you and he has 400 men with him, right? Like this is not looking good. And I think it's just something fascinating that happens after that. And if we look at it, it says, Vira Yaakov me'od lo. And Jacob became frightened and it distressed him. Right? So this, this at an intuitive level makes total sense, right? Like long lost brother, um, antagonistic history. He's charging towards you with 400 men. I think I would be stressed. Yeah, like this is, the, the, so far our plot line is working quite well. But we know that the Torah never has any extra words in it. And so what should jump up out to us right away is that it says he was very frightened and it distressed him. Now, anyone who has any anxiety, which is like any human being walking planet Earth, might also gloss over this. Why? Because when there's something that we read or we experience that sort of like makes sense in our cognitive framework, we'll skip over it, right? Like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Right? Like if you ever, if I think most of us here are women, right? Like if you come into a kitchen and you see a woman like brushing her teeth, stirring the soup, feeding a child and on the phone, you're not going to be like, oh, that's weird. Why is she doing so many things at once? You'd be like, oh, right. Like, of course, right. This makes sense. But that's only because no, that's no, the then you're going to like hand her a book to read because you're like, what yeah. are you doing? You're like so lazy. What's going on? Yeah, yeah. While you're at it. <laughs> How's your dissertation going? Um, so, so that's like a, such a good example of how when we have a framework or assumptions, we miss some of the details potentially there. And so here too, especially now, and I'm seeing so much anxiety around me and at times inside of me as well, um, both in my practice and, and you know, just in, in, in the discourse, it would make so much sense for us to skip over this because when someone asks you how you're anxious, you might say, yeah, like I'm anxious and I'm worried and I'm obsessing over this and I'm perseverating and I'm, you know, and I'm also a bit terrified about it. And, and it would make sense to us that Abraham, or sorry, Yaakov, Jacob's internal emotional world would have textures to the anxiety, right? That we would have, if, if we're sort of thinking about developing emotional literacy, that we would have more than one word or adjective to describe the experience. But the Torah is not just teaching us about the emotional internal world. It's coming to teach us about, about the interface between the individual and circumstances. And so if we look at Rashi, I think there's just something so important for us to notice when we think about the paradigm that we always bring here, which is choice, 
choosing up, that we have agency in our lives, that the divine gift to each and every one of us is the capacity to steer ourselves in the world, not to control the world, but to actually control ourselves in the world. Uh, and, and so Rashi, our, our go-to commentator says as follows, yeah, like the, these two words, being frightened and distressed, are referring to two different things. And he says the frightened piece, he became frightened that he would be killed, right? Asaph army coming towards him, he's afraid he's going to be killed. And it distressed him, Vayetzerlo, were he to kill others. And when I saw that Rashi, like it just was one of those moments where like the lights shifted. <laughs> you know, when you're in a, watching a movie or you're in the theater and like they change the lighting and, and it's like a cue to you to, to see this differently. Um, and I noticed it because what Yaakov's experience is, is I believe communicating to us, I, I wanna suggest here, is that there are different kinds of fear and different kinds of anticipation. And one is what might happen to us, but the other is what we might make happen. And if we really like think about this one, right? Like if we really pause and contemplate what is being, I believe, communicated to us, I want to suggest in here in this Rashi, is that it's pretty scary when you realize how much responsibility you have and, and what you could actually do. It reminds me like, of that Marianne Williamson quote, right? Like it's not, um, it, it's really the light, the, pow the power that we have to do something in the world that scares us the most, right? It's not the dark yeah. part of ourselves. So yes. that idea, like we don't, we don't feel comfortable with how much ability and agency we have to make change in the world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and that's often why it's much more comfortable to lean back into a, a, a more victim type narrative, all the things that are happening to us that we don't have control of, mm -hmm. because to actually step in and, and claim the capacity we have to make choice and to affect change for good or for bad, can, can be very distressing. And, and the truth is to know that with the capacity to make positive change is also the risk. There are risks you know, that we, we don't get it right. And anytime we take on a responsibility, we take on an element of risk and we actually can't avoid it. And, and you know, there's, there's a, a task that we have as parents and as teachers of anyone who, who is involved in the care of children. And that is the work of teaching children to mentalize. And to mentalize is to be able to understand that someone else has an internal emotional world. And so that's why when, when a child you know, is, is moving from toddlerhood to, to preschoolerhood and they're doing things that maybe inflict pain on those around them, right? Like when, when you do that, that, that hurts mommy, that's, that's upsetting. And what's important when we communicate that, not that we're looking to you know, guilt our children and, and um, disable them in the experience, but it's also an important part of the job to help them know that they have an effect on their environment and that separate from them, and this is the work of helping children transition from, from early years is to understand that I have an, an eternal world and you have an effect on me. And, and this is part of the work that, that I do sometimes with clients when they're working on, on parenting issues is to coach them to help their children mentalize, meaning to give the language over to their children to understand that they have an effect on the world. 
Yeah, and they have so interesting. I, see, I see that in the maturity sometimes like in different parts with my kids like places where they're not um as developmentally like mature it's as if they do something and whatever they just did disappeared into some black hole vacuum like mm -hmm. as if it has no effect on the world around them and then the places where they're more um De like developed they get like there there's a relationship between them and the world and i think we often forget that as as adults also like that everything we do has some kind of effect in some way consequence you know one of as, as i was thinking about this and the distress right like just realizing wow like I'm going to be dealing with this challenge because Yaakov does need to step it up and inherent in stepping up to that challenge is this risk and that's very upsetting and that's not who I want to be even if the circumstance calls for it is is something that we often see in in women during pregnancy and new parents mo mothers and fathers which is this anxiety where there are you know a certain amount of almost intrusive thoughts that come up around something terrible happening, God forbid, to a child. And, and part of how we explain that is when we really feel the fragility of life and when we really feel our responsibility for nurturing and protecting that fragile life, then it's also distressing. Terrifying. Sometimes. Well, it's wonderful. Yeah. Terrifying. <laughs> if we're going to talk about the textures of anxiety and emotion on our emotion. Yeah, like fear and distress, like exactly what Jacob was saying. Was yeah. Intent. Yeah, yeah, and and so you know, of course, I think we can't discuss this concept without quoting the famous quote from Golda Meir, who spoke about you know I can forgive the I think she said the Arabs is it am I I don't have the quote exactly in front of me if someone wants to Google it <laughs> um, for making yeah. for for killing our sons but I can't forgive them for making our sons killers, right? So so just to, to think about this very sticky, I don't have the answer for it, but what I'm saying to us is to think about the sticky, slippery and powerful place that comes up when we when we have choice and responsibility and, and that that's part of our work in navigating the world and in navigating ourselves and navigating challenges. And I don't think that the Torah only leaves us with that insight because the story progresses. And, and the first thing that Asaph does is he divides his camp, right? Like in case there's going to be an attack, we'll end up with one camp that survives. Right. Yaakov. Yeah, that's right. What did I say? Asaph. Asaph, you know. It's like Other twins. <laughs> oh, I found the gold in my ear quote. It's, okay, go for it. Uh, um, perhaps when peace comes, we will perhaps in time be able to forgive the Arabs for killing our sons, but it will be harder for us to forgive them for having forced us to kill their sons. Mm. Is this, this is probably the first totally time. Jacob. Yeah, yeah, totally Jacob. Yeah. I also want to say like, are, are we, we're becoming like a political Zoom here podcast. <laughs> no territory left untouched. Um, but but this is uh, what, what I want to to remind us of is that Yaakov doesn't leave us there. The Torah doesn't just leave us at, it's distressing to realize we can have an effect on our environment and our life and the people around us, but he, he prepares and he prepares in three ways. So we learn that he prepares by sending gifts ahead to Asaph, right? Like he wants there to be peace. He prepares for battle and he prepares through prayer. And the Torah is telling us that yes, 
it can be frightening and distressing to know that the world can throw stuff at us and that we can have an effect on the world around us. And, and if we are doing our best, sometimes we're not always going to have the outcome we would wish. And that I'm sure you've experienced this, Ellie, that when we take the risk of leading, when we take the risk of sharing a piece of ourselves in the world, we're not always going to get it all right. There will be times we hurt people, offend them, miss out on something, right? Like, and, and I've had this experience where I'm like, you know what, maybe I should just like stop it all. <laughs> like, what's the point, you know? Um, and then I'm reminded, and Rabbi Sachs, actually, a, a blessed memory, whose shloshim are coming up on Sunday, talks about this. This is like an inherent risk of leadership. Um, and, and, and really, good leadership is about being able to reflect on that and continue to show up for the task. And, and so Yaakov, in the Torah here, I think also arms us, pun intended, with a little bit of a framework, which is we prepare in the physical world and, and, and certainly we prepare for the most peaceful encounter. We gird ourselves, right? And so, so you know, all of us are fighting some battle, right? Like whether it's like how you need to protect your kid in, 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 in the school system or, you know, fighting for your own livelihood or a health issue or, you know, there, we're, we're all in places where we maybe get our fists up first. And, and that is a part of it, meaning we need to be able to advocate and, and sometimes step forward with that strength. But, but we want to go in with peace, with shalom, with, with the gifts, right? We, we want to go in that way. And, and that the third sort of leg of that stool of that approach is prayer, where we, where we bring in a consciousness that the Almighty is, is ultimately the, the one who determines outcomes. So how could we not talk about this Parsha? Basically, we could probably do like a year long one on this, but, but that's what jumped out at me this year. Um, this, this, these two different fears and, and the, the awareness of self-concept in the world as having potential effect and the the weight of choice as well as the, the liftoff that choice provides us. I love that because it, I've never thought of it in terms of he's afraid of doing something and he's afraid of doing nothing. Yeah. It's like you're just caught and, and how many of us have that experience in different parts of our lives. I'm afraid if I do nothing, but I'm also afraid if I do something like neither of those could go well. Um, but yeah. you don't have a choice. Like you have to choose. It, it, yeah. it, like not choosing between those is not an option. Um, and yeah, so I think that's really interesting. I remember actually once reading that, you know, it, of course, this is going to go political again, weirdly enough. Um, we never talk about this stuff, but I remember Here's reading that, Kumbaya. Right, that, that, that status quo, like doing nothing is also a is also a response mm -hmm. and because people were saying like things about israel like not doing certain things or not uh, like addressing certain things and they're like yeah but sometimes you just have to wait for a better option right and so i and because if you're like i'm afraid if i do something but i'm afraid if i'll do nothing sometimes there's a third option sometimes there's like okay maybe there's something else and i just have to try to figure that out but I definitely feel that Yaakov was in that state of being caught because it was coming towards him, like Esau's on the way with 400 men. So he didn't have the option maybe of looking for that third option. So mm. we're sort of seeing that emotional weird place of 
no matter what I do, I feel like I have to, I have to deal with this. I can't get around it, which is yeah. usually what Yaakov tries to do, interestingly enough. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a moment in his life uh, the Torah is showing us where he, he, he moves it for, forward towards really. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Should we move towards Hanukkah? Let's do it. My Let's kids do it. Okay. answer well, I, that and say yes. I, I, <laughs> My kids are like, no, no, when is it starting already? I just want to say that, you know, there's this concept that sometimes Hashem sends the refua before the machala, the, the healing before the affliction. So, you know, we've all spent the better part of a year now in various levels of lockdown and masking and outdoor visiting. And in Toronto in August, you know, if you wanted to buy an outdoor heater, like if you caught on to the idea that we were still going to be visiting outdoors and you wanted to have heat in your backyard, like you couldn't buy one. They were gone. So, so I just want to say that for many years, I and my family have been preparing for the COVID-19 pandemic when it came to Hanukkah. Why? We have a minhag. We have a very special tradition, <laughs> which is passed down from my mother. I feel like, you know, there's the famous story about the, the daughter who asks her mother why she cuts off the end of the brisket. Right. We just like says, well, well, I don't know, because that's like what Bubby did. Right. And and um, so she goes to Bubby and she says, like, so why do we cut off the end of the brisket? Like, you know, I know it's the recipe. And the Bubby says, oh, because like my, my oven was too small. <laughs> like, <laughs> You think it's like some mystical, magical yeah, cooking? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so this is like masora, like passed down tradition in my family, which is that um, my very wise mother does not enjoy her house smelling like latkes, you know, going to, into Pesach. So our tradition is that we plug in electric fryers outdoor. And I make latkes on the back deck in my parka. Now, I just will say, if you do this, you have to be careful because you don't want your parka to smell as a Canadian like latkes going into Pesach also for months, right? But basically, like I realized as I was thinking about this and, and, and really trying to uh, bring the choosing up framework really down to the ground, right? So, so this has been feedback we've received. Like we want more anecdotes. We want more taking these high level concepts, Torah wisdom, um, therapeutic techniques and really drill them down into like, what does that look like in life? So I was thinking about it and I thought, you know, all this time I had this idea of why we were doing this. And really this is the first year where something will feel the same. And how all of those years, maybe, maybe, right? Like if we want to talk about choosing up as this practice where we look at our everyday experiences and we look for meaning, we look for growth, we look for God. Maybe all those years I was practicing just for this year. You know, it's kind of like Esther's moment, right? When, when Mordechai comes to her and he says, okay, listen, you got to approach the king. And she says, no, 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 this isn't going to end well. And he says, okay, fine. Like God's going to make this, this work out. But like, maybe it was for just this moment that you came to the Malchut, that you came to, to become royalty. And so maybe it was for just this year of Corona where everything is feeling so different, where we are having to alter so much about how we are showing up and practicing and experiencing and, this is the same. I will go outside. I will go over to my mother's back deck, God willing, 
And I will, as I have for many years, make latkes outdoors, which will be, you know, in keeping with, with COVID uh, guidelines here in Toronto, but it will also be the same. And, and I just- I'm totally I think, walking over and filming that, by the way, I'm just saying. <laughs> I have to tell you that many years ago, I started, I started posting a picture and then I think maybe last year, the year before I did not And I, I actually got messages from people. I wait for that picture all year. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, right, absolute truth. So, so, you know, maybe, maybe part of our work is to see how some of the things we've been doing are, have prepared us for this time in our world. No, maybe, maybe some of the experiences that we have had have actually been training for just such a moment for just such a season, for just such a challenge when, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, we're getting a little bit tired, where, where we are feeling a little bit beleaguered or just not sort of sure where, where, where we're going. Uh, sometimes the best compass forward is, is to look back and to see where we have been able to prepare in our life or, or in our experiences. And this certainly is a piece of the gift that Chazal, our sages, give us at Hanukkah, which is a holiday that really speaks to the experience of what it is to be in exile. And so in this sense, I think about these festivals, I think about Hanukkah and also Purim as kind of like our sages putting a lunch note in our lunchbox. What do I mean? We're going into exile. We're going into the long day, right? Like school, when you're a kid, that can feel like a long day of exile sometimes. And your mom or your dad or whoever's caring for you can't rescue you from it, right? They can't like just, well, sometimes they can, but they can't every day pick you up and just make it all better. Um, but sometimes what they can do is give you something to take with you so that in the midst of all of that, chaos, confusion, stress, challenge, demand, you can like read this note and remember, hey, there's like someone who's thinking of me. And there's someone who knows like there's a bigger picture and I'm in it and I'm okay. And I think about Hanukkah as, as Chazal, our sages lunch note, which is to say, you're, you're still gonna be in exile and it's gonna get dark, right? Like it's gonna get dark in the arc of history. It's gonna get dark in, in terms of the cycle of the year. It's going to get dark maybe inside of you, but hey, there's this thing that you're gonna to get to do and it's gonna remind you, it's not as formless and normless and chaotic as it feels. And it's not quite as dark as it maybe appears. So I was thinking about what we can learn from the lights. So I wanna save some ideas for us for next week because you know, like we need to actually speak about it on the festival. <laughs> Because our biggest problem is that we don't have enough ideas to talk about. <laughs> I've always been told that I'm quiet. It's like an issue. So weird. I work on it. Um, I love this idea, though. It's actually really interesting what you're saying. Yeah, I, I think it's such a beautiful symbol that in the darkest month of the year, we have, you know, in, in so many different, you know, religions, but in Judaism, we have this festival of lights that really it's about, like, remembering you know it feels mm -hmm. like the opposite to me you know under the chuppah where we smash a glass mm. you know, like in the brightest moment we remember that things aren't perfect yet 
but in the darkest moment, we remember everything isn't like, not everything is dark. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Beautiful. Yeah. And, and so there's so much to learn from, from the lights and from the festival. So I wanted to share with you one idea that, that has been kind of rolling around for me in my mind, which is that if you look at the, the narrowed, if you look at the lights, whether you light oil or, or candles, but you look at the flame. So if there's no breeze, if there's no wind, right? If you have figured out where to place your menorah in your home that is you know, able to be either by the window or by the door in the right height, but also not like drafty near the, the vents and this, then it will just be straight. But if there's a bit of a breeze, right? If you've opened your window or it's, it's near that vent, you will notice that the, the flame, the light will, will tilt one way or another. And I want to say that that is an incredible lesson for us. What do I mean? So you might feel at this point in your life that you're not totally in balance, right? So this is probably a feeling that everyone can relate to. And I think it's a really interesting thing to think about the constructs, meaning the concepts that have been erected in such a way that we think they are reality that we live by. And one of those is a construct called work-life balance. And what I mean by a construct is that it is something that is created. It's a narrative. It's like, it's not like, you know, I have a mug, it's here. If I let go of it, there's this fact called gravity, it will fall to the table. And also there's this thing called work-life balance. And it's actually not a, a real thing. And it's so much part of the discourse that it comes up in conversation in how we talk to ourselves as if it's fact, meaning I'm really trying to strike more of a balance between, you know, home and family and my work, right? Or I'm working too much. I'm getting out of balance. I need to take more care of myself. I'm, I'm just trying to strike a balance as a kind of um, phraseology that, that we'll hear. And I remember hearing a concept a number of years ago, which was challenging this idea that the goal is balance. And uh, my husband, uh, he has a standing desk and he has one of these like boogie boards that he stands on. And I think like, this is really the thing. Like the goal is not to be in a fixed balanced place. It's to be agile. It's to be able to, to move. And this is good for the body, right? Like this is, this is actually uh, very positive to be able to be constantly adjusting and readjusting. And this is actually true as well. And I believe our emotional and our spiritual lives and the concept that was suggested in the research was that it's not about balance, it's about tilt. And that individuals who report greater levels of fulfillment of health and joy are able to tilt as needed. High demand at work, tilt toward work. High demand at home, tilt toward home. High demand in, in like running low and being burnt out, tilt towards self and self-care. And that the work is not to be always figuring out just how to be balanced, because let's all be honest, it's impossible, at least in a sustainable way, to be perfectly balanced, but rather to know how and when and where to tilt. And that the people who could draw boundaries and lines and say, actually, like too much going on at home, I, I can't do that for you at work. I got to tilt or just too tapped out, can't take on that project, got to tilt towards like napping and yoga, um, reported greater outcomes around well-being, around stress management, health and, and happiness. 
So if you look at those candles, if you, the neighborhood, the lights, the flames, they tilt. But here's our magic ingredient. They tilt, but their natural state is upwards. And so it's not just about tilt. Right? So that's like from the, from the psychological research. But let's bring in what we know is the ruchni is the, the spiritual layer here, which is that, yes, it is about tilt. Yes, it is about emotional uh, agility in ourselves, but that the key and core ingredient and what I believe the message of those Hanukkah lights is for us and at Hanukkah is that the thing that will enable us to do that and to tolerate not always being necessarily in balance and knowing when and where to tilt is to be constantly striving upward, which is to, towards growth and towards the almighty. And that when we, when we look at those candles, those lights, the, the flame, and we see that, I believe that that can help us reconceptualize what we experience inside of ourselves. So that if we're feeling a little bit tilting one way or another, or we don't know kind of how to get back to center, those lights are telling us it's okay to tilt. Center is upward, meaning towards growth, towards God, towards connection and Torah wisdom. And also if you're noticing a bit of a tilt, it doesn't mean something is going terribly wrong here. And you just have to get yourself back, right? But really permission to, to conceptualize it differently. I love that. And it's also those small adjustments, right? That tilt doesn't mean pitching over the edge, right? It can just simply mean like small adjustments necessary in the moment, um, which I think is, is not what we're used to doing. We're either like, like you said, trying to strike some, you know, constructed idea of balance, or we're just all in, in different places and suddenly realize like, oh my gosh, I haven't like eaten in two days. Like, you know what I mean? Like it, it's an, it's, you were, remember you were like stirring the soup and reading right. the book and feeding. Right. The exactly. Right. Like, oh yeah, I forgot to sleep, but you know, so, but I love that idea of the tilt because it, it gives these small adjustments based on what's happening rather than you know trying to hold balance and then suddenly having having to pitch because there's crisis um yeah i love that a lot that's beautiful isn't that just such a beautiful image also yeah 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 and it, it so much is in line with what we know about work that is lasting and sustainable uh, both from a Torah growth perspective, frameworks that we often use from the from Musser approach, as well as behavior change research, which is that micro shifts are actually where the game changing work is, and and what and really what we're aiming for. Yeah. Right, and it reminds me of that. There's a, you know, there's a a story in I think. I can't remember which text I saw it in, where basically someone says to one of the sages, like, which um, avot, which patriarch should I aim to be like? And the mm -hmm. answer was like, whichever one is appropriate for the moment, right? Mm -hmm. you're, it doesn't, you don't have to just assign yourself that one person and that's, no, but each moment calls for a different type of tilt, a different type of leadership, a different type of midot. Um, so I love that. I, I feel like it gives so much choice rather than um, us feeling like we have to lock ourselves in in some way. Mm -hmm. And you said our favorite word here, choice. We could start a game, right? Where everyone gets like a point for every time we say a certain word. Are we going to drink? 
Um, okay. Yeah, so we'll do L'chaims. Um, we have a story, right? We have a story. We have a story. And we, ha and we have a choosing up like homework this week, actually. Oh, I love homework. That's so good. Okay, let's do it. We know we are telling so much about ourselves as students here, right? Maybe we'll just call it a practice, a suggestion. I like it. Okay, options. Choices. Um, we have choices. Good choices, beautiful, which actually is a very important strategy in terms of creating buy-in for people. So if you have anyone you're working with in a relationship, professional, personal, child, creating choices is empowering and we're actually much more likely to get outcomes around change. So that's my DBT therapist self-speaking, right? So one of the, the, the pieces there, I'll just digress for half a second more. I'm, I'm writing yeah. furiously in my mind. Taking okay, <laughs> is that is that we assign homework in, in when we're teaching skills, but that uh, we like to give choices of different kinds of homework because mm. you're actually much more likely to have people complete the work if they feel they've chosen it. Mm. Oh, I wish they did that. Okay. Yeah. Okay, story time. Story time. So this is a beautiful story. And I actually, I didn't ask permission to share who it was from. Can I say? Yes. Okay. I got a nod. Okay. So this is from Karen Levy. Thank you so much for sharing this beautiful story with us. And also I saw you baking your challah while we were um, speaking. And that is like dreams come true. Like this doesn't get any better to share ideas and know that you were making challah for Shabbos while we're, we're having this discussion. I mean, you know, if we were in Yushalayim, Jerusalem, maybe that would make it better, but that's it. <laughs> okay. Here we go. This is beautiful. During the first COVID-19 lockdown, my younger daughter was asked by her teacher to do an experiment about growing plants. She placed one bean in the middle of a Ziploc bag in between two damp paper towels, sealed it, and stuck it to the window to watch it grow. She was excited about watching the little bean transform into a plant, but the days passed and nothing happened. Weeks passed and still nothing grew. She started asking herself, why is it not growing? Did I miss something? Did I do it wrong? It had, been, it had all the elements required for it to grow, except it wasn't growing. But then she realized maybe the staples that hold the bean in the middle were the cause of the problem. So I told her that it was a good idea to try and release the staples, and we did. The bean was still standing in the middle with nothing to hold it. A few days passed and it started growing and growing like a beautiful little plant. This is when the choosing up idea came to me. We can prepare the necessary elements, plan the per plant the perfect seed in the best setting possible. But if we don't give ourselves an unlimited space to grow, then how can we potentialize ourselves? If I keep my walls up, then there is no room for me to grow and transform into a beautiful human being that I am meant to be. Beautiful. Thank you so much. And I, one of the things I really love about that is it's not just your own personal experience, but sharing this with your daughter, right? And, and, and that, that relationship and interchange around the choosing up. So, so we've been kind of wanting to take these stories apart a little bit to show how there's this moment where we see things one way, and then we have this sort of like place in our brain where we go, oh, I have a choice here. Maybe there's a lesson here and we open up to, to, the, to the growth message with, within our experience. And I, I thought it was so powerful how, how you talk about like the questions that first come up. Did I miss something? 
she thinks, right? Did I do it wrong? And, and that having those sorts of thoughts or experience is not antithetical to growth. It's part of a growth process. And it's from that place that we can pivot and we can look at it with fresh eyes and go, okay, hey, like what maybe needs to change here? And, and I thought it was such an interesting aspect that you brought out, which is that when, it, when we're talking about organic growth, we need space and how essential that is, whether it's physical space, whether it's emotional, spiritual, intellectual space, that we need that. And, and Ellie, you and I were talking about how that's one of the things that you do so beautifully is creating space for people. Well, I think it's interesting too that, you know, the more I speak with Avram Nadigal and, um, and his wife, who's a child psychiatrist, Eliza Israel, Dr. Eliza Israel, um, you know, they really talk about the um, most of the time, if you give kids enough space, that they're, um, that they'll, they'll, they'll kick into themselves. Mm -hmm. you know what I mean, it's like the more you kind of like are on top of them, the less like they have room to sort of figure out how to be and the more space you give them often the, the, the healthier the choices will become, which is so interesting in, in today's mm -hmm. parenting world, where we really feel like we're supposed to be navigating every single part of their lives. Yeah, so I wanted to add to, to this beautiful story, another layer, which is that what you're talking about here really in terms of growth for ourselves and for our children is really planting, like literally and figuratively. And Revolbi, who was one of the, the Musser greats really of our generation and who we, we, we share um, wisdom from often, has a Sefer, a book that was translated into English by Rav Kellerman called Planting and Building. And he also has a book, if anyone is interested to kindle the soul that's very much based on this, that pulls in modern research. I don't know if you can hear my planting and building in the other <laughs> Um, thank God. So, so he talks about there that in, in education, in Chinuch, which we are also all involved in educating ourselves and, and raising ourselves, that there is an element of organic growth and that's planting and that's instilling values and perspectives. And that requires space and that organic growth to be the individual that we are. But he says, like, if you look at even like a tomato plant, if you have no structure, it can't really grow properly either. You need to put the stakes in. And that's where the building comes in, that we do need structure. Right? And that is expectations and routine and, um, and the, the, you know, like we, we require teeth brushing at bedtime, right? Like it's not like creative tooth hygiene, dental hygiene, right? Like just we give them the space and they'll come to it, that there is some element of building that is required, meaning uh, boundaries and expectations and, and really the routine that creates that safety and then the space within that. And the third element that he speaks about, which really brings us back to the beginning, Vayishlach, right? To, to Yaakov is the third element being prayer. We bring God into that picture. Uh, and so, so this story brings out such in such a beautiful way how when we look at our lives and we look at something seemingly mundane, like you know, a teacher asking a child to, to do this project, we can find the most sublime spiritual messages. And what a, what a gift you gave to your daughter and, and to us. So, so first of all, thank you so much for sharing that story. And, and my, all... my 
right? Uh, I'm happy you you like it, and uh, it was it was nice. It was just nice to come to that realization and how uh, sometimes we. Like I just thought about myself too, how I sometimes have walls, like invisible walls, right? Just like uh, Rabbi Posen, uh, Paminsky was saying in Pesach that we have these walls and then suddenly you are in the desert and right? It's like nothing. And it's just like, just to bring those walls and have space, space to grow. Oh, beautiful. And yeah. get into the unknown. Yes, uh, into, into our midbar, into our wilderness. We're getting there. We're still a but yes, we're getting there. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you so much. So I wanted to thank you. And, and we do need to wrap up a little early today. So I'm going to end with a couple things. Can I do that? There were a couple of messages that came in asking about how to get onto my newsletter. You can go, you can email me first of all. I would love to hear from you. Ilana, I-L-A-N-A-R, Kendall, K-E-N-D-A-L at gmail.com. Um, or through my website, ilanakenzel.com. Uh, you can sign up there. We would love to hear from you. And, and particularly this week, we want to hear from you because this is the choosing up homework, practice, stretch for the week. So I shared with you when I thought about looking at those lights, a lesson for, about tilt. And next week, we're going to spend more time talking about choosing up messages um, for our lives connected to Hanukkah. So I want to send you off, all of us, with a charge and a challenge, which is to contemplate what you and we can learn from the Hanukkah lights. And I would so love if you would send them in before next week and we could share them. So it doesn't have to be long. It doesn't have to be elaborate, but just something like if you were to sit before that menorah, the first night, Thursday night, or think about previous years, or even if it's that like you made, you know, latkes outside also and, and how that's prepared you. But we, we want to hear those stories. So a very big thank you to all of you for spending this time together with us here, for helping us rev up to Shabbat. This is one of the shortest Fridays of the year and we still made it. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to join our live Zoom each week, Go to myjfi.com slash register to sign up for our Zoom session on Fridays at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We would also love to hear your choosing up stories and moments. Please send us an email and let us know more at ellie at myjfi.com. To learn more about Alana Kendall, her book and her work, go to her website, alanacandle.com. Until next week, let's find our way to choose up. <laughs>